Thanks, Billy. And, uh, you know, last Sunday I, I talked about one of our elders who wears shorts 50 out of 52 Sundays of the year, and I tried to be discreet about who that was, and then, lo and behold, Billy, you wore your shorts today. Thank you. Uh, well, good morning. Glad you're all here. Um, if you are visiting or new here and I haven't, haven't had a chance to introduce myself, my name is Jason. I've had the privilege of being lead pastor here at Solid Rock and really excited about so many things going on here at the church. We are a church on mission. We, you hear that every Sunday. You just heard about what we're doing nationally. Um, we are also this weekend currently engaged in our community locally on mission with the Christmas store where we, you, know, you guys as a church over the course of October and November, bring together brand new gifts and put it all together and make donations. And then we set up a Christmas store in White Settlement at Hawaiian Falls and allow families who have fallen on hard times to come through and receive gifts for their children to receive a meal. We bring them a meal. Our life groups will be delivering meals next weekend uh, for Christmas, just a full package meal, uh, but also sit down and get to share the love of Christ with each of these families. And many of you were involved all day yesterday, and I hear that it's going all afternoon today until around 6.30. So I'm just really excited just to give you a few numbers so you know the scope of that, um, of that mission effort. Uh, this year, we have 25 families that will come in through the course of this weekend from yesterday morning at 7.30 a.m. through this evening at 6.30 p.m., uh, representing 83 children. Uh, we have had over $3,400 in gifts brought this year and $900 in monetary donations to help put all this together. Just to give you some perspective, last year we had 21 families with 66 children uh, and $2,700 in gifts and donations. So last year was awesome. This year is even better. Many of you are, have already served this weekend and been a part of that. And we're really excited about what God's doing in our community. And the, the two families that, um, that I had a chance to sit down with among all of them that, that you guys have been sitting down with, I, I said, you know, we, we do this Christmas store because we believe there are people in our community who don't know how much God loves them. And that's our primary message to you. And so um, hopefully... Uh, our community is beginning to feel the impact of God's love in a real tangible way this weekend. So um, excited about that. So glad you're here. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 11. Uh, Revelation 13, 11. We'll, we'll get started in just a minute. If you're visiting with us, just always want to catch you up. We are in a fairly lengthy sermon series right now going through the, uh, the famous book, Revelation, uh, the one that is oftentimes the most difficult to understand, uh, oftentimes uh, spins off um, the most controversies among theologians and pastors, and we are making our way through the book, um, all the while being encouraged, um, our hearts stirred up in expectation for the return of Christ. That's the main point of Revelation. And, uh, and so today what we're going to do is finish chapter 13. It'll be our last sermon in Revelation of the year. Uh, next Sunday we'll be focused on uh, the birth of our Savior. You'll have a special sermon on the 27th. And then the first Sunday in January we'll pick back up in chapter 15 of Revelation for those of you who are reading ahead. And then we'll finish out in January the book of Revelation before starting the next sermon series. And so um, last, the last two weeks and this week together what we're looking at is a really significant part of understanding the rest of Revelation because in chapter 15, we're gonna to get to this great conflict between God and his enemies. And so what we're being introduced to through chapter 12 and 13, specifically the leaders of God's enemies, Satan himself, represented in chapter 12 as a dragon who makes war on the woman and her child and the children and the woman's offspring. We see this as Satan himself making war on the church, um, on Jesus himself at the cross, and now on the offspring, the, 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 uh, the followers of Jesus even today are living in this experience of having, 
having been made war against by Satan, the dragon. And so what we're seeing in chapter 13 is that his war will be, uh, will be will carried out through two earthly leaders, the Antichrist, chapter 13, 1 through 10, and then starting in verse 11 today, the false prophet. And so that will set us up then to understand this great conflict we'll read about in chapter 15. And so what's emerging um, thematically, not only this war being waged against the church, the followers of Jesus, is that Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are really making up a false imagery of Trinity. That in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're beginning to see the dragon, and we saw last week with the first beast, these imitations where they're, they're masquerading as a false sense of, tr- of the Trinity here on earth, calling followers to themselves, calling for worship of themselves, interacting with one another. And today with the false prophet, we're really going to see that again, that through, through imitating the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast are, are imitating uh, this Trinitarian relationship between God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So... Um, as we pick up today, what we're picking up on is really these two prophetic themes coming together. So let me read two verses of scripture for you that will set us up to start reading on verse 11. So first of all, uh, from two weeks ago in chapter 12, this overview of the dragon waging war, verse 17, this is the first part of 17, the dragon became furious with the woman, who we saw as the nation of Israel and also specifically Mary, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So up until we get to the return of Jesus, several chapters away, we're gonna begin to move into this war time, this time of great chaos. And so from here, we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 15, when he told us about this coming conflict, he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous as wolves. So we know that the enemies of God won't show up in an obvious form, but they're going to show up like, like a wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to they're gonna tend to look like us and tend to try to look like God. We saw that last week very specifically, the attribute of God that he is incomparable uh, with any other entity in the universe, this Old Testament imagery of who is like our God. We saw this in the Antichrist, that he was beginning to receive that kind of, 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 of praise from the people on earth. Who can be like him? Who can wage war against him? And so we know that this strategy of the enemy is to imitate God, to attempt to hijack the attributes of God, to fool the people on earth, to, to, to lure the allegiance of people away from God towards the dragon. So Verse 11 is where we're going to pick up. You ready? Man, I am ready and excited. All right, here we go. So this is John, the apostle, watching this imagery unfold. He says, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So just a couple of things. So last week, the first beast, it rose up out of the sea. This one's rising up out of the land. So similarities, but yet two distinct figures. Uh, not only is this beast rising out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Already a reference between the second beast and the first beast, the, the Antichrist, the one who had the, this, this wound that was healed, imitating Jesus himself, the lamb that was slain, and also speaking like the dragon. So we're, we're seeing this, 
unique relationship between the three. Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and verse, chapter 20, verse 10 will all let us know that this second beast is actually the false prophet. Now we're going to watch it unfold, but we already know this, who this particular character is. Now, the Antichrist last week appears to be more of a militant figure, waging war, leading out in war, where the false prophet we're going to read about today appears to be more of a religious figure, directing or redirecting worship away from Christ to the Antichrist. So we'll pick this up now in verse 12. There's actually a significant shift in wording in verse 12. Let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. The first half of 12 says, It, being the second beast, exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence. Now, this is the word of God, so we believe every word is intentional, right? Every word chosen, every tense is specific and chosen. So 1 through 11 is all past tense. Verse 12 is now present tense. From 12 on through the rest of the chapter, why does that matter? So what it seems like is John is getting an imagery of things that have already happening, happened, bleeding over into what is happening from past tense to presence. So it would give us the idea that this isn't all just future, but something is beginning to unfold here over time. So here's a couple of options as an interpreter of Revelation. So if you think about John's time, mid-90s AD, end of the first century, He's either seeing this in reference to his own day and time, as he saw the Antichrist, he's speaking in past tense, things that, that he saw maybe even already begin to unfold, and as he sees the false prophet, he begins to talk in, in present tense, or he's thinking of this or seeing this in reference of the future, so in his mind, he's thinking in reference to the end times, and so he's seeing that the, the movement of the Antichrist has already began to unfold and begin to give way to the present tense of the false prophet. Prophet. So the idea here is that, 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 that we would take away from this is not necessarily that the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to like run for office together and, and hit the public scene together at the same time. It, it could be at this graduation, if you will. Slowly but surely, the Antichrist begins to weave himself into culture around the world, and then the false prophet follows as John sees this kind of unfolding over time. So just a very specific nuance that lets us maybe catch, catch a glimpse of what John is seeing. Now, let's talk for just a second about what's happening here. So this second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. So if you collect everything we read in chapter 12 and 13 together, what we see here is this chain of authority unfolding. So in... In Revelation 12, the dragon had this authority to wage war on the followers of Christ. And then last week in 13.4, we saw that this authority was passed on to the first beast. Verse 13.4, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, this antichrist beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who can fight against it. So you see this chain of authority from the dragon to the Antichrist to the false prophet. Now why is that significant? Because it's a great mimic, if you will, of God the Father extending authority to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. If we look at John chapter 14, verse 10, uh, one of many references in the Gospel of John, uh, uh, in particular to this idea of authority from the Father, Jesus says in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am... In the Father, and the Father is in me. 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does this work. Jesus himself saying, I'm in the Father, he's in me. This authority that I have to teach and to speak, it comes from the Father. And then in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth and he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. And so we see this, you see the, the, this, this, this great facade, this mimicking, this hijacking of the relationship of the Trinity. The dragon is passing on to the authority, mimicking the father. The Antichrist is gonna pass on that authority to the false prophet, of course, mimicking the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. So the rest of verse 12, and so he has this great authority and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. There's the Antichrist. So this authority comes from the dragon to the Antichrist to the false prophet, and now worship begins to work its way back up the chain. The second beast or the false prophet is, is, is attributing worship towards this first beast, the Antichrist, the one whose mortal wound was healed again. We see this in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. John 17, 4 and 5, Jesus says, I glorified, speaking to the Father, you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, this, this, this sharing of glory between the Father and the Son is being mimicked in the dragon, the beast, and the second beast. Even in John 16, where we were reading earlier, picking up in uh, verse 14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the truth, the Spirit of truth who comes and will guide you in all truth, who doesn't speak on his own authority, he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, will, he will, being the Holy Spirit, glorify me. Jesus is saying that. He will glorify me. That's verse 14. And he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So now Jesus is pointing to the Holy Spirit, taking what is Jesus's and declaring it to the people. And Jesus says, that's actually belongs to the Father. The Father gave it to me. And so you see this authority being passed on from the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then glory being passed on as well as the Holy Spirit prompts people to worship Jesus and Jesus points us towards the Father. Now, in verse 13 and 14, we're gonna see more indicatives of a false prophet. What is he gonna be doing? How will we know who he is and what his activities are on earth? Verse 13, it, being the second beast, performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, being the first beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So the great sign of the Antichrist was that he had a wound, a mortal wound that was healed. Mimicking Jesus, right, who had a mortal wound, who went to the cross and died on our behalf and rose again. But now this, this second beast is going to be performing different types of, types of signs and wonders and miracles, even bringing fire down in front of the eyes of, of the people. This, this imagery of God working miraculously in the Old Testament through fire is, 
is, is, uh, is found really th- all throughout the Old Testament. Elijah um, br- comes to my mind, two specific references to Elijah from 1 Kings and 2 Kings, where the prophet Elijah prays to God, the one true God, to strike down fire. At one point, consuming an altar in front of the, pagan, the, the believers of pagan gods, and then at another time, con- actually consuming uh, men. We see God miraculously in front of the eyes of people, displaying his power through fire. And Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost, this is what I was thinking of this week, the movement of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Acts 2.1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, being all the followers of Jesus at that point in time, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house they were sitting in and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we see this miraculous work of God revealed through fire that people see whether it's Elijah in the Old Testament calling down judgment or calling down um, the, God's hand against this false altar um, or it's the Holy Spirit resting on the disciples. And so now here we have uh, this verse 13 telling us that this false prophet is gonna mimic that, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. It's gonna hijack something God does to bring glory to himself and to the first beast and the dragon. And then we read here in verse 14 that the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceived those who dwell on earth. And so as the people are deceived, here's what he tells them, telling them to make an image. So this is idolatry. Make an image for the first beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So you, the second beast is, is, is going to lure people into creating a false image of the Antichrist for worship. What an interesting thing. Idolatry is is playing out in front of our eyes here. Verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, stop for a minute. What we're, what we're reading about here is, is, the, is the greatest mimicry of idolatry ever known to human history. So, so, so idolatry has been around since sin has been around. Men and women, um, men and women buying into the idea that something here on earth could bring joy, satisfaction, and security and identity, whether it's a golden cow or it's this new house, right? Whether it's this altar to a, to a false god or it's this relationship over here I've got to have, right? So idolatry is not new, but what's being played out here is incredibly different because the, the Bible over and over again reminds us of how ridiculous it is to worship idols. I'll just give you a few references, one from Psalms 135. Verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but they do not see. They have ears but they can't hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. How ridiculous it is to worship idols that can't talk. They, they, they look like they should be able to talk, but they can't. Why? Because they're not alive. They're not real. Verse 16, 
the, uh, back in the Old Testament period, um, there were temples um, to pagan gods where they would set up rope and pulley systems on some of their idols to make them look lifelike. It's almost like the Wizard of Oz playing out in the Old Testament. So for the people who are reading this, they were very familiar with that concept of kind of creating a smokescreen, if you will, and, and, and trying to make idols look alive. I mean, they got hands, the hands need to be moving. They've got mouths, their mouths need to be, need to be moving. Mimicking what? Mimicking the idea that they're, they're actually alive. Genesis 2.7 tells us that at the creation of Adam, the, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then the man became a living creature. Only God can do that. But here the false prophet has created an image of the Antichrist and he's been allowed to breathe life into this idol looking like it is alive. Let's move to verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. Stop there. What we're getting here is this this reference to the impact that salvation has on earth. The salvation of Jesus is a salvation for all nations, both rich and poor, slave and free, Greek and Jew, male and female. No demographic or socioeconomic uh, background keeps people on earth from the salvation of Jesus. Every tribe, every language, every tongue. Now we're seeing that mimicked here as this worship is called of this false idol that is impacting every demographic and socioeconomic background. Nobody is, is, is free from the luring of this, this worship. But then he goes on to say this, So nobody is free from the impact, and here's going to be the tangible impact to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Now, this imagery, of course, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, we're told uh, to teach the commandments of God to our children uh, when we rise, when we walk, when we sit down to eat, when we lie down at night, that the commandments of God are to be written on our foreheads and to be written on the doorposts of our house, that our inward identity in Christ would be seen outwardly. Now, even that is being hijacked. We saw in Revelation 7 that, that there, you had these four angels holding back um, this destruction on the earth and this chaos. And there's a, there's a fifth angel who's holding them back until what? The saints of God are marked and sealed. And so now here we have the beast trying to pull this off here on earth by marking and sealing his followers on the forehead or on the right hand. Now, plenty of historic examples of this taking place. These people would have been very familiar with the idea of a king or an emperor marking his subjects or his possessions. Uh, In 217 BC, the Egyptian Jews were branded with the ivy leaf symbol uh, to the god Dionysus. Um, Romans would often tattoo slaves and soldiers to mark them as property. We even saw this in, if you saw the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, um, as soon as he decides, right, like, I'm, I'm out, I'm no longer loyal to the emperor, what does he do? He cuts off his mark of allegiance, his tattoo, he cuts it, cuts it, then he puts 
maggots or something in there is kind of gross, yeah. But that idea, what, he was saying something, why I no longer belong to the emperor. He, I'm no longer his possession. So to be marked and sealed, Revelation 7, we're marked and sealed as Christians by God. We belong to him. We're, we're not our own possession. We're his possession. That's a good thing. But here now the beast is trying to mark his possessions. Lots of speculation. Will this be a tattoo? Will it be an encrypted chip in my skin? Will it be my social security number? Like, I don't know. But God's saying that the beast will attempt to mark in some way those who belong to him. And look at what this uh, false prophet is going to do. He's going to utilize economic sanctions here in some fashion, verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So it seems like the Antichrist is going to have this military movement. That the false prophet is going to utilize what it seems to be some type of economic sanctions to bring about this pressure so that people will have to get the mark. Now, here's what I would say to you beyond speculation. Don't expect this to be super obvious and in your face. We're seeing clearly that the, 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 the ploy, the strategy of Satan is going to be under the radar, subtle. Okay, and we're going to see in just a minute, it's, it's prudent and wise and good to pay close attention with caution. Now, don't, don't falsely interpret everything you see as a news headline as there's the false prophet, right? We're supposed to be watching, but not naive and quick to judgment. Look at what he says here. So here's how this is going to be controlled. You can't buy or sell unless you have the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, that's, that's an interesting concept. Um, but for these folks at this particular time, this is not strange to both have a name and then a numeric representation of, uh, of your name. The, um, the, the word for this is actually either, I'll try my best, Germatria or germatria, almost like geometry. It was this ancient use of letters symbolically to represent numbers. We see it play out in practical ways like Roman numerals. But even before then, um, letters of the alphabet resembled numbers, and they would use that to, to produce a numeric name for people. So, for example, if you take Jesus' name and translate it, you would get 888. Don't ask me to do it for you. I'm just, commentators are telling me that. I trust them. So you could get a numeric representation. That leads us then to understand that the mark will either be the name of the beast or a numeric representation of the beast. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, and that his number is 666, and then some manuscripts will have 616. We'll get to that number. I know Barry's waiting for me to tell you what the number represents. Okay, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best. So, so just reminding ourselves, though, that for those who follow Christ, we've been marked and sealed by God himself. And this is kind of a scary imagery, isn't it? That there would actually be a leader here on earth forcing people to get marked by some representation of his name, and he would control society through the economy. Of course, this isn't, this isn't new. This was actually taking place at this time in history. I don't know if you remember from the letters to the church, the church Thyatira, 
Um, the, the, the city of Thyatira, Thyatira, the economy was controlled by guilds, craft guilds. So you had the shoemakers and the, and the, you know, the makers of fine linen. And you had the, all these different guilds. And you couldn't engage economically in the society unless you were part of a guild. Maybe like a, a, a precursor, if you will, to unions. Like you had to be involved in a member. But the thing is, these guilds were steeped in pagan worship. So Christians were being tempted to compromise Right, so that they could engage in the economy. So, so John was very familiar with this concept. And so he's either seeing something that, again, that he was just familiar with and it was taking place then, or he's seeing something you know, in the future where economic sanctions are used to control people. All right. I want to remind you of something from Revelation 22, verse 4. The followers of Jesus will see... His face and his name will be on their foreheads. Okay, church? While we're reading about this unleashing of chaos and destruction, we're seeing that it's not something that may happen. It seems to be inevitable that there is going to be some type of conflict taking place here on the earth between God and his enemies, between the followers of God and the followers of Satan, as we're going to see unfold. God wants us to see hope. God wants us to understand, as we've said already in this series, I've got this. There is no amount of chaos that is outside the boundaries of my control. There is no amount of despair that goes beyond the hope that I have for you. There is no amount of suffering, enduring persecution here on earth that can even compare to the glory that is going to be revealed for the sons and daughters. In Revelation, earlier on, John was told to take a scroll and eat it. It was both bitter and sweet, right? There's a bitterness to what we're reading here in Revelation, but there is a sweetness to it, knowing that our God reigns. And what we're looking at here is not just a possibility of what may happen. This is God saying it will and is even necessary to happen in order for his plan to be revealed, for his glory to be made known. So verse 18 of Revelation 13 beckons us, calls us, urges us to wisdom and prudence. Look at verse 18 again. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. A lot of this imagery we're reading comes from Daniel specifically today, Ezekiel, even some from Isaiah, we're seeing this imagery from the Old Testament playing out here. And even the prophet Daniel reminds us in Daniel 12.10, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. He's talking about salvation. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Prophet Daniel's connecting our righteousness in Christ to understanding. And Daniel's saying, hey, there's going to be people who don't get this. They don't get the prophecy that I'm writing. They're not going to get it when it's unfolding. And now here we have John urging the same thing. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number. A call to not be haphazard speculators, but understanding the mark of the beast requires extreme caution and divinely guided wisdom to interpret the sign. So let me... For a second, unpack 666 for you. Um, But let's do it under this umbrella of caution 
not being quick to, to label current leaders, but being watchful and prudent. So if you take that numeric um, system of letters and you use 666 or even 616 as some manuscripts um, have, you end up with a transliteration of Nero. Now Nero was this infamous uh, Caesar, Roman emperor in the mid uh, first century, about 30 years before John's writing this, who had this incredible uh, impact of persecution against the church. Many, many of the apostles even suffered under the reign of Nero. It was a short-lived reign that is very brutal. And so for the people who lived after that would often refer to the reign of Nero both literally and symbolically as this great season of suffering had impacted the church. It would be maybe comparable to like a Hitler and so you would maybe refer to Hitler even symbolically today when you want to describe something that's horrific or some, some great season of suffering, they would do that. What's interesting is if you transliterate Nero, Caesar into Hebrew, you get 666. Or if you translate Nero, Caesar into Latin, you get 616. So either way, it seems like, it seems that way, that this numeric value is pointing, John sitting here at about mid-90 AD, pointing back to Nero, somebody who has already come and died and gone. And, and so potentially here, this is, this is mainly symbolism to say, one will come like Nero. One would come in the likeness of Nero, have that kind of impact on the church, that kind of impact on God's followers. He would literally wage war on Christians the way Nero waged war on Christians. There's my best attempt at 666. There you go. Could it be representative of somebody's name still to come? Sure it could be. Sure it could be. I just, I just think there's just right, too much there to, to not miss this Nero-like imagery. It's most likely a Nero-like leader who fits the description described in Revelation 12 and 13, the characteristics and activities of the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. All right. Are you, are you still with me here this morning? Yeah. So, so here's what's, what we've just been um, presented. Through chapter 12 and chapter 13, these are the primary enemies of God. These are the ones who are waging war against God and the followers of God. And in chapter 15, we're going to see this great conflict take off. But just like we know the conflict is inevitable, the chaos is inevitable, what do we also know? Victory. Victory is certain. Victory is certain. And how do we know that? Well, the, the beautiful thing about Revelation is for us as Christians, it continues to point us back to the cross and reminds us of that victory. So that we know victory is certain. Why? Because Satan has unleashed his greatest tactic against the Son of God, and he lost. He lost. He, he fatally and mortally wounded the Son of God at the cross, killed him, and yet the Son of God did what? He rose again on the third day, displaying victory over death and victory over Satan. And so through the book of Revelation, we're working our, our way to this point where Jesus returns. We just sang about it, where he makes all of his enemies a footstool. Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist are all bound up and thrown into the lake of fire. And guess what the last enemy is to die? Death itself. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that, and Revelation will tell us, tell us that again, that finally death 
will die. There's never been a, a person here on earth who has it on some way wished that death would die, that death weren't inevitable, weren't part of what we have to face. Whether it's traumatic death or it's a peaceful death, we use that word loosely, right? Every one of us has experienced it either in a fear of our own mortality or losing somebody that we love, we hated and we despise death. It's okay to hate and despise death. Death is an enemy of Christ. And Jesus is saying to us as his followers, I have overcome my worst enemies. Trust in me and you will overcome as well. Now, I wanna say this to every person in the room. You right now, whether we figure out exactly where we are on the timeline or not, right? Whether we figure that out or not, we can set that aside for a minute because each person here is walking in a fallen world and your life has been and will continue to be greatly impacted by the plan of Satan to lure you and tempt you into idolatry, to believing lies, to try to tempt you into despair, to try to convince you that God doesn't love you or that he's forgotten you or that he doesn't exist at all. And it's so ironic that Satan himself is gonna masquerade as God, though he tries to plant the lies into our lives that God doesn't exist. Hijacking God's ideas, his character to try to lure people. Does Satan believe that God is real and exists? Absolutely. James reminds us of that. Even the demons believe and they shudder. I don't know what your chaos looks like right now. I don't. Right now, it may seem peaceful or Right now, your life may be more chaotic than it's ever been. And, and I know several of you, and I know several stories that are unfolding, and I know, I know there is a temptation to despair among some of the people here at our church. Tragic loss of life, unexpected loss of a job, marriages seem to be going down the toilet with no hope at all, Will I ever be loved? Will I ever have purpose? What is, what is this all about? Has God forsaken me? I, I know your temptations. I've heard you articulate them to me. And Jesus wants to say to you, take, take comfort. I have overcome this world. In this world, you will have trouble. But take comfort. I have overcome this world. Whatever your specific challenges, Jesus said, hey, I've overcome that. Fill in the blank. I've overcome it. I have overcome this world. Praise Jesus. I want to transition now to, to an invitation that we've been reading through Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear. What a beautiful invitation on the table today to become a child of God. If you have never come to the place in your life where you've trusted in Jesus and him alone, meaning nothing else you can do but him alone, if you've never come to that place, I'm going to encourage you to do that today by faith. You would trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross. Jesus is saying, believe in me and that work is yours. Believe in me and my righteousness is yours. Believe in me and the forgiveness of sins is yours. And that invitation is on the table for every person in the room today. Whether you're super religious or this is your first time to be at church, Jesus is saying, I want you. I want you. You don't impress me. You don't have to impress me. I want you like you are. Simply come to me and believe. Simply come to me and believe. I'm gonna pray for us right now as our worship team comes back up. And I'm gonna pray that if that's you today, that you'd make that decision. I'm gonna ask also that our prayer partners um, will be available in the back. 
Um, they'll be back here in this uh, connect corner area with black lanyards on that says prayer partners. Um, they would really enjoy the opportunity to pray with you and hear about what, how God's speaking to you. And if you'd like to come up and kneel and, and pray at the front and just spend some time in God's presence, you can do that. Um, our worship team is going to lead us in singing, but if you just want to stay seated, just meditating on the word that you've heard this morning, thinking about what God is speaking to your heart, I want you to know you're free to do that as well. Let's pray together as we prepare to respond. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as we look at Revelation and we, we attempt to think and ponder about the end times leading up to your return, on one hand, Jesus, there, there can be a lot of intimidation, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of even potentially fear. This morning I'm reminded of how Revelation begins where Jesus fall, John falls down at your feet as though he's dead in fear and you, and you touch him and you, you encourage him as your child and you, and you remind him not to be afraid because he's yours. Jesus, today, we pray that any person here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of, of faith and salvation. Today would be the day that they would declare in their hearts that, that they belong to you. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Send your presence here this morning. Move among us, stir our hearts. Touch us where we're broken. Bring healing to where we feel despair. Remind us of victory where we, where we feel defeat. Take the ashes and the ruins that, that are the product of, of your enemy and bring from these ashes beauty and life. Come work miracles among us, true miracles. We pray this all in your powerful name, Lord Jesus.